together a monthly podcast called Textual Feelings about queer and feminist writing. Uh, we're very happy they are here as every time uh, we, as every library talks, we invited them to propose 10 books that fit or inform their practice. Um, for the first time we kind of made a nice balance between things that are already here and, uh, and new books they have suggested for us to purchase. Um, they, in their podcast that you should definitely listen to <laughs> if you have not yet, uh, they've uh, talked about three books, The Argonauts of Maggie Nelson, um, Heroines by Kate Sambrino and um, <laughs> The Lonely <laughs> City by Olivia Lang. Do you say it like that? <coughs> So in each episode, they talk about one specific book. Um, I should also introduce the two of you quickly. Um, Maddie Hemming completed a Master in Cultural Analysis at the University of Amsterdam and is interested in non-heteronormative literary and theoretical depictions of pregnancy. And Rosie Howard uh, just graduated from, critical from the Critical Studies Department at the Sandberg Institute she writes erotic fiction and is interested in thinking about queer temporalities and the sea. Um, so thank you so much for coming and um, the floor is yours. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. Well, yeah, thanks to the library for inviting yeah. us. We have an introduction which Peter kind of just introduced anyway, but we'll, we'll go through it again. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I guess we could say that we both love libraries so much and this is kind of our natural environment. So it's such a pleasure to be able to recommend some books and talk to you today about the ones that have had the biggest impact on us recently. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll just briefly tell you a little bit more about the podcast. We've been doing it for about six months now. Yeah, yeah and we've done three episodes on these books just here, The Argonauts, Heroines and The Lonely City. So those three we're not going to talk about today because we've kind of packed a lot in anyway. So yeah, we thought we'd leave those out. So if you want to hear more about them you can listen to the episode yeah each episode we talk about one book and we focus on those that kind of blur genre or the boundaries of kind of form or thinking about gender or sexuality and um, we focus on books that prioritize queer and feminist lived experiences yeah um yeah and i think as we said in our bio kind of grandly we hope to focus on books and celebrate the ones that examine the ways in which words can help us live our lives so yeah yeah and we've been friends for years but I think it was last summer that we started talking about doing the project together yeah I think that was when we were both reading the Argonauts and kind of we were listening to this other literary podcast called Literary Friction run by two women that's really great but we thought Actually, we wanted to listen to something that was focusing on the books that we were so interested in, so we thought we'd kind of just try and do it ourselves. Yeah. So today we're going to take you through the books that led up to the podcast, then some that we've either discussed or are thinking about discussing, and then some ones that we've been reading more recently. 
so that are kind of new and fresh yeah yeah and so the the ones we're going to talk about today are this yeah, pile and the one on your list anyway but um i think that we could say that they all follow similar lines of interest to the three that we've already done so we're going to be making some points of connection as we go um drawing lines of kind of similarity between their approaches to form but also looking at the different political implications of the texts and as we were preparing we were talking about kind of what it means to find a point of similarity between all of them which we haven't done but we were trying to think about that and what it would mean to even try to do that in a way that wouldn't run roughshod over their very important points of difference yeah so, so the first book <laughs> that we're going to talk about is i love dick by chris kraus which was published in 1997 and then republished in 2006 and it had quite it like wasn't received very well the first time it was published there's been a huge surge in popularity recently um which may be also due to the fact that it was made into a tv series directed by jill soloway which you might have seen so um yeah we don't have time to talk about that right now even though we maybe like to, yeah. yeah um i think it can feel like i love dick is kind of saturated in meaning um so much has been said about it and it was quite an obvious one for us to do an episode on but we're actually going to do one on aliens and anorexia which is krauss's first book instead but we wanted to talk about it today because I think it's been quite a formative book for, for both of us. Yeah. So in case you don't know it, the book is a novel somewhat loosely. Um, it combines fiction, letter writing with autobiographical details um, and also art writing. So Chris, the protagonist, is based on Chris Krauss and it's widely known that the story she tells, like a rather notorious story, um, did really happen, so she did form an obsessive relationship with a cultural critic called Dick. Yeah, and I think it was the first book that I'd encountered maybe like four or five years ago that wove these forms of autobiography and fiction together, even though it's kind of under the guise of a novel, really. But I think she does it in such an exciting way, and even though she's kind of part of a lineage of female writers who use the material of their lives for their work, this seemed kind of just, I don't know, she did something else to it. And I mean, yeah. there are many people that have done this before, like Kathy Acker, who Chris Krauss has actually just written an autobiography of as well. So it's not like she was the first person to do this, but I think right. she was the first I'd kind of come across. Yeah. But I think something that interested me particularly about this book is that she's very, she makes a very hard distinction between confession and candor in her work. So despite the fact that she is using the material of her life for her writing it's not that this is a I mean I think there's a historical tendency to assume that when women do that it's cathartic and emotional and kind of bodily and messy and even though that can be the case she makes it very clear that this is not what she's doing so it's kind of a candid retelling of events that have happened to her but she's not doing this to splurge her right, kind yeah. of emotional difficulties or something she's like extremely in control of the content it's very performative yeah yeah she's kind of performing a version of herself yeah. for us in a way i think yeah yeah and i also think in a way she's kind of the classic feminist anti-heroine figure i think that was one of the that was maybe i wouldn't have used that phrase when i first read it but actually mm. that's a really helpful way of thinking about what i liked first about it because chris krauss's taken issue a bit with the way that people have related the word abjection to the book but actually I do think it's a, a really interesting exploration of a female character kind of putting herself in incredibly 
uncomfortable positions um, in ways that I think we're kind of socially conditioned to find embarrassing. For example, like the way that she writes about her position in the art world um, and her obsessive letter writing to this man who doesn't reciprocate her feelings. So she's completely in control of the way that she's out of control. And I think that that was a really exciting thing to read about. And in a way, I see her character in the book as being a part of a lineage of female writing by people like Clarice Lispector writing about these kind of widely seen as like abject female characters, but doing so in this more reflective postmodern way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I mean, I think it's, it's really like a study of female vulnerability in a way and sexual desire. And maybe, I think there's a really nice quote. Um, do I have it? Yeah. So there's a quote where she says, why do people still not get it when we handle vulnerability like philosophy at some remove, which I'm still kind of thinking about, but it is in some ways an examination of this vulnerability and a kind of like a championing of it as like a methodological tool, yeah. maybe, yeah. perhaps. But it's also one of those very rare books that actually talks about and acknowledges heterosexuality and the kind of dynamics, the heteronormative dynamics in the art world and in her personal relationships, even though, I mean, to some extent, not completely, but that does very much exist in the book. Yeah. But I think also it's easy to forget that it's a really funny book. Like, Chris is dry and humorous and kind of very self-aware, which does not carry over to the TV series at all. No. Unfortunately. Yeah, her, and her command of, like, comedic language is, is really wonderful. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, so I'm going to read one more quote quickly and then we'll move on to the next book. But I think this kind of sums up our general interest in all of the books, so it's nice to kind of put it out there now. So she also writes, who gets to speak and why is the only question. So, yeah, I'll just let that. Yeah, and I think also just to add on to that, like Chris Krause as, as a character and also as a writer, like a white woman living and if struggling in the art world, it's important to ask to what extent her voice is particularly marginalised. Um, and I think that that's a question that we can level at all of these books and at ourselves yeah. um, throughout this yeah. and just in general. Mm -hmm. um, so the next book on our list also grapples with this question of who gets to speak and why. Um, and, but really think, and thinks through the ways in which the specificity of a voice um, and an embodiment can affect one's writing. So Sarah Ahmed's queer phenomenology is the only theory text that we've chosen. Yeah, the only one that's wholly theory. Yeah. yeah. So the book is exploring the question of what a queer phenomenology might be. Um, and it starts by looking at the ways in which queer as a word um, and as a spatial orientation functions in the phenomenological writings of Edmund Tussell and Maurice Merleau-Ponty. And then from here, she goes on to press upon the orientation in sexual orientation. Um, and then in another chapter, she explores the concept of disorientation um, as it emerges in the writing of Franz Fanon. So who writes about the disorienting effects of being a body of color in white spaces. And so she weaves these things together. And I think it's nice that we get to talk about this book in its own right, because we've used it so much as an aid to talk about other things. Mm -hmm. Like I used it in my thesis to talk about the potentially disorientating effects of the queer pregnant body in the Argonauts. And I think that you used it as well. Yeah, it was recommended to me 
last year and I've been thinking a lot about queer temporalities and like reading around that theoretically but I think for me this book really kind of foregrounded my interest in the word queer along with the Argonauts I was reading both at the same time mm-hmm. and I think it's the way that she uses it as such a broad term so it can be like social and spatial and yeah. sexual all at the same time so it's kind of she just made me see the possibilities that the word held I think and also her writing is comparatively quite accessible and I think I really enjoy the way that she does this thing where she'll like switch words and sentences and then repeat them a lot so this kind of <clears throat> repetition works in a way that you can tell that as a writer it helps her think but also as a reader it helps you understand what she's saying at the same time yeah for some people way. at least I think some people find that part of her writing really infuriating but I I really like it yeah as I mean well. when we went to her lecture I actually found it so annoying yeah. in real life, but in writing it kind of really helped me think. Yeah, because yeah. you can kind of hold all the different meanings of a word with you each time it's used, maybe. Yeah, but I think also it's nice to note that you don't have to be familiar with like writings on phenomenology before no. you read this book. Yeah. Like, just go straight to this. Because she's definitely using their work to think beyond it and to also like massively challenge its heteronormativity. Yeah. It's like, so I think that she's not assuming a readership um, and I think that's really important and also she really calls for in throughout the book um, and also in her work in general like a feminist and intersectional engagement with the politics of writing so she's asking us and asking philosophers in particular to recognize the conditions of one's embodiment and she's proposing in the book that this could have disorientating disorienting you can actually use both (laughs) Um, effects on the universalizing of much philosophy so she like looks at the way that so much of the philosophy she's talking about is written from a seemingly absent body but it's just a white cisgendered male body so disorientation comes across as something that can be experienced as uncomfortable but it could also have radical effects yeah and I think it's great that she centralizes queer bodies and bodies of color in this text that's what it is about you know she doesn't kind of try to get away from that and I think there's I've got another quote so many quotes um and she writes a queer phenomenology might involve an orientation toward what slips which is obviously like a very small part of the whole book but I think that's what made me so excited was this acknowledgement that like moments and bodies and thoughts can slip away and that they are not the kind of the multiplicity of all these things and the kind of overlaps is what she's kind of talking about I think and if you're interested in her as like a a cultural figure last year she really put her politics into action when she resigned from her post at Goldsmiths University so she um, was part of a group looking at the treatment um, and the response to claims of sexual harassment and abuse at the university and when nothing was done in response to multiple claims she she left her place there Um, and she wrote about this on her blog as well yeah which is called feminist killjoy which is really amazing and also nice if you don't feel like delving into a whole theory book yeah I mean it's still quite dense for a blog but I think it's nice because Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of her material goes before she publishes it so it's still quite fresh and she often talks yeah. about her like personal experiences or things that have happened to her in the day and, and there's small amounts of text as well so it's nice because you can kind of just l- read one post um and it's maybe just dealing with one yeah. idea for a short amount of time and it can just stay with you throughout the day yeah 
So the next book we're going to talk about is one that we came to through The Lonely City by Olivia Lang, which we've done a podcast episode on. Um, and she writes about um, artists living in New York who've helped her through a period of loneliness while she was living there. And one of those artists is David Wonorovich, who wrote Close to the Knives. And this is a collection of essays written loosely in a memoir form, although they clear kind of uh, structure and form changes throughout, yeah. I would say. And uh, yeah, this was published in 1991, but it was republished this year with an introduction by Olivia Lang. Yeah, who's, she's just a massive fan. Yeah, she's just a yeah, huge fan. So I think a lot of the books that we've chosen, or just a, most, a lot of books that get published, um, are written by people from relatively economically privileged backgrounds. And many of the writers here work within academic institutions. And David Wonorovich was eventually recognised as an artist in his own time, but his childhood was one of extreme poverty and he was homeless in New York for many years. And he was a sex worker. And it's these experiences that come up throughout the book, even though the periods of time that, it's, that it narrates are kind of go throughout his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to being a document of a, a period in time, it's also a testament to just such an incredible imagination. Um, yeah, the book's just full of so much really beautiful writing and it offers such a sharp analysis of the time period. So, you know, Wonorovich is writing from a position of being a queer, poor man, living in New York in the second half of the 20th century, living with AIDS, surrounded by people whom he loved dying and a lot of those deaths are narrated throughout the book. And just to kind of maybe frame the writing a bit, Charlie Robin Jones put it very well in a dazed article when he said that Wonorovich should be spoken about in the same sentences as William Burroughs, Jean Genet and James Baldwin. And yeah, I just I think the book gives you a sense of his range as a writer because like you said, it covers quite a few different um, forms. Mm. So some of the reading kind of reads like dreamscapes. There's these amazing passages when he's writing about traveling through Arizona, visiting like queer hookup spots, which at that time was incredibly dangerous. And that's a part of the thrill of it, but also it's, yeah, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And then he's also writing about moments of intimacy and erotic encounters in the Chelsea Piers in New York. And in some of these essays, there's hardly any punctuation, so they read with a kind of urgency, but also surrealism. Yeah, and I think it's it's nice because he's the only artist on our list, apart from Chris Krause, who also used to make films. But mm. um, and he was made famous for his paintings. But I think there's some like very well known photographs, a photograph series called Arthur Rambo in New York, which is of David Wonorovich in various places like the subway or in his house masturbating or like buy some graffiti with the mask of Arthur Rambo on. Yeah. And I think that's nice because it acts as like an archive of New York at that yeah. time. But um, yeah, there's a particularly tender passage in The Lonely City where Lang is talking about Wonorovich and how she's watching um, a film that he made of his lover and friend Peter Hajar when he was dying of AIDS. So all of this footage of his body is then intercut with whales swimming which you can watch on youtube actually yeah yeah it's heartbreaking and i think that i think it's just it's nice because reading the lonely city made me realize how important wonorovich's writing about intimacy and sexuality was yeah and i think it's it's important to make links between all of these books and acknowledge that they kind of move like we've 
got to one through the others yeah. so they all hold reading lists in themselves in a way yeah and there's so much care and love and um political work being done in the books in the in who they reference like it matters who's referenced yeah. for what for what kind of examples i yeah the reading the lonely city really had that effect on my approach to so many artists i think i just went to see the peter huja exhibition in the hague which i think actually closed two days ago but He's another, so he's, we've already mentioned him, but um, he was a photographer and seeing his, what, like images of things like cows or one of his partners um, in this exhibition took on a kind of whole other level of meaning for me, knowing what I did about him from reading The Lonely City. Mm. So yeah, I think maybe something that characterizes the book and the others is the way that it just refuses to be any one thing. Like David Wonorovich is able to articulate um, everything wrong with the way that queer people and AIDS was dealt with by the government or not dealt with. Um, and at the same time as articulating a kind of morbid fascination with death. And there's just so much that's kind of contradictory within the book, mm. but also just so powerful. Yeah. And yeah, so we'll go to the next book. And that also emerged from a very specific moment in American history. Um, it's Citizen by Claudia Rankin, which was published in 2014. Yeah. And it's a very powerful and kind of poetic consideration of like the history or the contemporary moment of racism in America, mm -hmm. basically. Racism and violence. And we chose this, we're doing, actually the next podcast episode we're doing is on Don't Let Me Be Lonely, which she wrote before Citizen. Yeah, and which can be like, it's got the same subtitle as it. Um, yeah, an American lyric. Yeah. yeah, so, but we thought it was just nice to talk about another one of her books. I yeah. Think. yeah, and also because no library would be complete without a copy of Citizen. Um, so, yeah, so the book's made up of seven sections, which take a, quite a variety of different formal approaches, like quite a lot of the books, actually. But I think it's best known for its depiction of, like, racist microaggressions, and I read that a lot of the content was taken from interviews that Rankine conducted with friends of hers, and a lot of the moments that are depicted take place between friends and between colleagues, and are instances of racism expressed and experienced on a, on a subtle but striking and powerful level. Yeah. And then in addition to these anecdotal passages, there are sections that are engaged in like cultural analysis. So there's a section on the Venus, Venus and Serena Williams, I was about to say the Venus sisters, <laughs> the Williams sisters, um, and her treatment by the tennis world, like the racialization of her body and her actions. Yeah, and I mean, I think that section is particularly interesting because it really displays the accumulating force of racist encounters and ha the kind of long-term effects that they have on the body that they're directed towards. And also, there's so it's basically an account of the multiple times that Williams was left at a disadvantage in a tennis match because of discrimination from the umpire. Mm -hmm. So it makes it very clear that in these instances, the person who the racism is directed towards is then made to account for how they react to this situation. Yeah. And in this case, it's this trope of the angry black woman, which Rankin deconstructs for us. Yeah, and she does so in, with such a caring focus on Serena as well. Like, you can tell she's such a fan. Um, a tennis fan. Yeah. And then 
so much of the second half of the book is made up of these scripts for films called situation videos that you can watch. I've watched one of them that were made by Rankine and her husband, who's a filmmaker, John Lucas. So the text here is quite like documentary style of found footage. So the first one is called Hurricane Katrina and the text is taken from CNN footage. And then the next is called In Memory of Trayvon Martin and is written in the first person, which is striking because most of the book is written in the second person, so to a you. And then at the end of this section, um, Rankine uses a very notorious image of a lynching in the US South from the early 20th century. But she does this thing of redirecting the gaze, so the image that she uses is altered. So instead of directing the viewer's gaze towards the violently murdered bodies, it redirects the gaze towards the white perpetrators standing under the trees, I think in a, in a very like important redirection, um, as in like it's their faces that we're supposed to be looking at and mm. questioning. Um, so yeah, I just said like about the second person voice, which I think has so many different effects at different times. Um, yeah, I mean, I experienced it as Rankin talking to herself, so kind of like a diary or retelling these instances to herself again and again, yeah. as if to remember how frequent and violent and important they are. But I think that it kind of, it covers such a huge variety of things. It's like anecdote, personal experience, cultural analysis, visual essay, but also Rankin as a poet. Mm. So that I think that kind of underscores. Yeah, I think it's book. easy to focus um, on the kind of main points of the text, but at the same time, it's so important to say that it's just, the whole thing is so incredibly beautifully constructed. Um, and builds up so forcefully and acknowledges all these connections between explicit and implicit racism. Yeah, yeah, and really just makes the argument that they're all explicit. Um, so I think that, yeah, what am I gonna say? Oh yeah, it was nice to say something about the the presence of visual art in the book. Yeah, and I think this is the only book apart from The Lonely City that has any images in it, and it's a maybe shame because, can. yeah, we can maybe look at it. Do you want to hold it up yeah. while we talk about it? Because <laughs> wow. in The Lonely City, images are used so poorly. There's like one picture per chapter and they're so unconsidered, whereas these feel so integral to the text. That's maybe not a good Yeah, sorry. Some of them are like found images, in the, but a lot of them are artworks. Yeah, so there's, they're actually not referenced in the text at all, but they're from various artists like Carrie Mae Weems and Glenn Ligon and lots of others. But I think the yeah. consideration, it feels like there's a consideration between the kind of images and words and that the images are not illustrative of what she's saying, but they kind of form a dialogue between. Yeah, and complement. Yeah. yeah. And again, there's just a kind of imaginative space created in the book um, through its poetry and through this unexplained relationship between sections and images that yeah. just creates so much um, imaginative space. Yeah. So, next yeah. next one is, um, sorry, I feel like we're racing through, <laughs> but we haven't got much time. Um, the next one is The Autobiography of Red by Anne Carson, which was published in 1998. And I read this in the summer and have been thinking about it so much, partly because it's the first book I've read in a while that's completely fictional. So... Yeah. And out of all of these, it's the only 100% fictional book. 
Well, as far as we know. I don't... Actually, yeah, I'm going to contradict that immediately. I don't think any of the books is 100% anything. Maybe that's the easiest way to do it. But yeah, so it's a novel in verse, and the main narrative is a reimagining of the Greek myth of Heracles and Geryon. And Carson reimagines this myth um, so that instead of being a monster, Geryon is a queer young man, and instead of being... Instead of killing or being killed by Heracles, he falls in love with him. And this main narrative is then bookended. And so at the beginning, there's a brief description or of the original myth. Yeah. And then at the end, there's a kind of fictional, strange and funny imaginary conversation yeah. that she's having with the original author of the myth. So Yeah. I think when I first read it, I wasn't really sure what was going on there. But I was really... I just loved how funny the whole book is or the way that it treats with such a lightness yeah. so many of the potentially very weighty moments in the text so it kind of moves from this like moments of kind of mundane everyday life to the breathtaking um, stuff of the myth and the presence of the volcano mm. but I think it's also important to say that Anne Carson is a classicist and a scholar right, so yeah. it's not like coincidental that this is the context of the book. No, and I think that if you, because I don't, I didn't know. I think there are many references that I'm not getting when I read it. Maybe in terms of the use of classics, and I think it's funny to think about what the like niche would be of this book because it would probably be like queer classicists, which I kind of love. <laughs> but like, did what did you think about the myths? I, I mean, I am really into that stuff despite not knowing much about it. So Mm. that just was another exciting thing about it for me. But I think that I kind of skipped the bit at the beginning and then started to read the main narrative and then Mm. felt guilty and then went back again. But I think that it feels both very contemporary in content and then magical in this like very deeply historical way, Mm. having this as its context, because also it's just a platform for her to go from. And it's, she's having so much fun with this like retelling and reimagining yeah that it's not that that is like a very important historical reference yeah it's like a play it's like a playful use of research or a playful like she's playing with what research could be maybe yeah i think mainly it just felt so exciting to read a kind of fictional text that had as much impact on me as these kind of lived experiences and then Mm -hmm. to remember that it's not just authors first-hand experience that we can learn from but these imagined fictional characters who live in a a world that we don't know or understand but also to be able to linger in it and learn different things because I mean poetry can say things in a way that other forms can't obviously but that kind of felt very present yeah I think in that way you can relate it to Citizen and also maybe to the Argonauts as well in the way that all these texts through their use of poetry are creating small pockets of a few words together that just do something that is impossible to put a finger on but is so powerful and in a way the portrayal of intimacy in um, autobiography of red in particular between two men could be compared to the the images in close to the knives they're not a world away from each Mm. other in a sense even though one close to the knives is intensely political and the autobiography of red isn't actively engaging in any kind of as in like you don't know where or when it's set so it's pretty hard Mm. to frame it but it's there's just something important going on in portraying queer intimacy and yeah the book is just really affecting and gorgeous 
But um, to take a very sharp swerve, the next book that we're talking about and hoping to turn into an episode is um, Paul Preciado's Testo Junkie, Sex, Drugs and Biopolitics in the Pharmacopornographic Era. So it came out in 2008 in Spanish and then the English version in 2013. And as its very long title suggests, it's a pretty dense read. Yeah. It's like packed with theory and it's almost an extension of Foucault's theory of biopower applied to 21st century gender politics, just no small task. But it's also very personal and it engages in and promotes what Preciado calls auto-theory. And this is the book that Maggie Nelson gets the phrase from, which she's used auto-theory to describe her approach to the Argonauts. Mm. Um, but Preciado is using this term to describe the process of self-experimentation that the book narrates. So it's primarily concerned with his, his experience of taking testosterone externally to the medical system for a year. And it's a trans narrative, but it's not necessarily a narrative of transition in any linear way, in the sense that we are not invited to read Preciado as transitioning from one gender to another, but more engaging in an analysis and a critique of the very terms that would call for such demarcations. Mm -hmm. So just to give you a sense of the kind of writing that we're talking about, maybe we could Oh yeah, read we have sentence. one very short sentence, which also describes what Preciado is doing in the book. Yeah. Um, so he writes, This is a record of physiological and political micromutations provoked in BP's body by testosterone, as well as the theoretical and physical changes incited in that body by loss, desire, elation, failure or renouncement. But yeah, I think a lot of the books that we talk about, or maybe all of them, flirt with this like genre of auto-theory yeah. in some way, in very different ways, but particularly in relation to the Argonauts, where the theory and the personal narrative is woven together, this is very clearly marked. So right, yeah. there's one chapter of this personal narrative and then one chapter of theory, and then it alternates throughout the book. And I've actually only read the narrative parts. But um, it's amazing because it's just, there's so many great depictions of non-heteronormative sex. Yeah, the whole way I mean, yeah, there's a whole chapter about a strap-on, yeah. which is amazing. So yeah, they alternate between this personal narrative that covers the time when Preciado was taking testosterone and had moved, had like ended one relationship and then started a new one and the kind of excitement that comes with that. Um, and then this theoretical writing around the forces that shape what Preciado calls the pharmacopornographic era that we <laughs> apparently are in right now. Which you said without looking at the page, I think. Yes. <laughs> so we kind of haven't delved into this much yet, but we just wanted to bring it up because it's one that we've been reading well at least I've been reading right now so it yeah. feels like exciting well I've yeah I've read the whole thing and I really I really like the theory parts but there there's so much there's just so much to learn from reading the book so even though I've read it I feel like I'd have to read it like five times to p fully take yeah, anything but in. also you could just read one of the narrative chapters yeah definitely it's whatever whatever you whatever ever much of it you would choose to read it's just an explosive and exciting book and yeah yeah so, our last book. Um, we chose to talk about Hunger by Roxane Gay because, partly because, it was just published in the summer and we both just read it, so it felt like a nice current one yeah. to bring to the table. So it's called Hunger and then the subtitle is A Memoir of My Body, which kind of sums it up. So Gay charts the complex relationship she has with her weight and 
she details the social and cultural expectations that come with narratives of anti-fatness and race in America and it's written wholly in first person and it's very clearly her voice and her experiences that she lays out for you yeah and in that way it's more of it's more of a um, straightforwardly autobiographical text than some of the others in that there's no veil there's no distancing going on Mm -hmm. in the sense that this is her story so she's revealing incredibly vulnerable parts of her history. For example, the book tells us of how she was raped by a group of boys when she was 12, and how her weight gain as a teenager was largely in response to this traumatic event. But she's always in control of the narrative, and she's not asking us so much to feel sorry for her, although what happened to her is awful, but more for us to think critically with her about the ways that we're taught and expected to think about our bodies and others. In a way that is similar to the reading experience of reading the Argonauts, maybe. When reading a book like this, I think you have to remind yourself, or rather she's constantly reminding you, that just because you have read the book, that doesn't mean that you know her or know anything more about her than if you hadn't, in a sense. Like, this is a controlled, careful, critical version of events. Yeah, and again, it's maybe fighting the want that people have to categorise women's writing as kind of emotional yeah, and cathartic, definitely. that's not what this is. It's interesting because there's so much repetition in the book and I think this could be experienced in very different ways. Yeah, I really struggle with the narrative voice. At first I found it really frustrating, um, perhaps mm. because she writes their very short sentences, very explanatory, and maybe I'd read something before that wasn't like that or something, but I found it very jarring and not very interesting, but actually it gets so complex, yeah. even maybe because of this repetition, that the kind of force of all these events happening again and again and again is just very overwhelming, yeah. I think. But the way that she writes also kind of reminds me of Sarah Ahmed's in Queer Phenomenology, this repetition of words and sentence structure that is interesting because they are so wildly different in a way, but are maybe trying to do similar things, perhaps. But I think that this text just confounds so many weight loss stories and myths and does an incredible job of tying these narratives to homophobia, racism, classism, sexism, etc. Yeah. When I read it, I just kept thinking about the word gift for some reason. Like, I felt like Roxane Gay was giving the world a gift with this book. I guess I feel like that about all of them, but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've finally (laughs) got through them all. Yeah, and this is a working list we could have had another 10. And I think it's clear that we've, we aim to prioritise voices of female identified queer writers, writers of colour, but it's also quite obvious from the list that it's very western centric. Most of the writers here are from the US and clearly that's something that we need to do work on and yeah. Also that it's quite an incestuous list in that like they know each other yeah. and they write about how much they love each other's books yeah. and it's a bit kind Claudia Rankine and maybe. Maggie Nelson are really good friends like, yeah which is kind of nice in a way and then also kind of gross but <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah so yeah I think we're done <laughs> oh yeah Text to feel